Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So uh, we've got a debate, Republican presidential debate on Wednesday evening for those who qualify and desire to be there. Obviously, Trump is not going to be there again. Uh, we're looking at, what, four candidates? Yes. Haley, DeSantis, Ramaswamy, and uh, Tim Scott? Chris Christie? Is that, what, is that what we got? It's Chris Christie, and do we have five? I've lost count. Do you care? 312-642-5600, turnkey.proanswer line. 64636 DA, turnkey.pro text line. But the the real question, and it was, was raised by Doug Truax uh, over at uh, Restoration of America, who sent a letter to uh, RNC uh, chairhuman Ronna McDaniel. Why do you have Lester Holt and Kristen Welker moderating this debate? Well, it's going to be on MSNBC, but two people. I mean, we also have Hugh Hewitt from Salem Media, obviously our brother yeah. in sound that's going to be there. So Hugh's going to be there, and all that's right. all well and good. But but why is Lester Holt and Kristen Welker moderating a Republican presidential debate, a Republican anything debate? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro text, uh, call line. You can also text us on our text line. Six four six three six. Type in DA. Then a quick comment. Brent Bozell of the Media Research Center agreed with Truex. Your past performances moderating debates and your slanted news coverage on behalf of NBC make me very doubtful whether you can be effective in the process. Uh, I suppose anyone can learn, but yeah, I mean, this is conservative media. I, I thought we went through this before. I thought we've gone through this a couple of times. Why is the Republican Party enlisting? the D.C. press corps and their apparatchiks to partner with debates that are intended to provide information about the candidates to Republican primary voters. What does NBC, CBS, ABC, to an increasing extent Fox, what do they have to do with the Republican primary electorate? I'm unclear. Uh, Unless they're trying to have the I got you moments. I don't know. Well, that's about the only – well, I mean, from their perspective, from their, actually, right. the only value I see in having a Kristen Welker and a Lester Holt be the main moderators of this debate is for the opportunity for somebody to go Newt Gingrich, somebody to go Donald Trump and go right after the moderators and have that moment. Actually, DeSantis had that moment in the Fox debate when he – refused to participate in the raise your hand question and then the other candidates agreed and so on and so forth. So there's that opportunity for that moment for the candidates to go right at 
uh, the moderators and say, you know, uh, Kristen, before I answer your uh, absurd question, let me ask you a question. This is a discussion. And, um, you know, you don't lord over me. So I'm going to use my time however I want to use my time, Kristen, or less. Well, I don't think Lester Holt's going to be the go-get-you guy. I think Kristen, that, that Welker, Kristen Welker will. If you watch her uh, go-get-you, she's, she's, she's a mope. That's what's embarrassing about it, too. It's not like this is the John Kenneth Galbraith offerings of the left. This isn't firing line where you've got some actual uh, leftist intellects that know something, that have read a book. You get a bunch of uh, room temperature IQs with meaningless J school degrees like Kristen Welker pretending to be Tim Russert. I'm sorry. Nobody's buying it. The five candidates are, of course, you know, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott's in it, Vivek, and Chris Christie. Um, so this was a good piece, actually, by uh, Aaron Flanagan over at uh, AMAC, the uh, conservative alternative to the AARP, the American uh, Association of Mature American Citizens, uh, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Anyway, um, he gets to where I'm going. For example, um, here's a question. The, the, the debate should be, I mean, if I, if I was a presidential candidate on that stage, the debate would be me asking the moderators uh, outside of Hugh Hewitt. I'll answer his nuclear triad question, and then I'll return my attention to uh, Welker and Lester Holt. And I'll ju- I would just ask them questions all night long. For example, really? okay. uh, here's what Flanagan offers. Before I answer your question, Mr. Holt, let me ask you, What do you and your network's corporate leadership say to millions of voters watching this debate who believe that NBC is a singularly left-wing organization committed to advancing the agenda of the Democratic Party and progressive activist class while turning virtually every political story into an attack on Republican candidates or conservative views? What do you say to conservatives who view you as far more powerful than the Democratic Party and think of you as the real opposition party? And you have 30 seconds to answer the question. Exactly. And I'll give Kristen Welker 60 seconds to respond. Wouldn't that be fun that to be, turn, that would be good completely turn the tables on, on them? Let's have Krista Welker and Lester Holt answer our questions. I, I would actually collude like, with the other candidates to do that. That would actually be entertaining. Why are you here? Have you ever supported a Republican candidate? Are you open to supporting, uh, or supporting a Republican candidate? Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? <laughs> um, there's all sorts of questions we could have oh, fun yeah. with. Uh, quite your questions, not about the debate, because that's not going to be interesting if the candidates stick to the script and they're 30 seconds or 60 seconds and 30 seconds and blah, 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 all their sort of reintroduction pap and the, the, the trying to lie in the weeds for their moment. Uh, I'm going to slam Vivek about uh, Ukraine or Israel funding, and I'm going to slam Chris Christie about being uh, an obnoxious uh, – you know, uh, Macy's Day balloon, who is just singularly focused on Trump to the exclusion of anything interesting. And I'm going to focus on Nikki Haley being another neocon. Uh, I mean, that's that's it's so predictable. What's gonna exactly. Happen. That's why I don't even want any after the second debate. I mean, I have never try almost turned off a debate, not once, but twice while I was in process. But I kept, like now I have to watch this for work. But it was so stupid and such a colossal waste of time for all of the American people. So but dumb. Here's another from Flanagan over at AMAC. Before okay. I answer your question, Mr. Holt, let me ask you this. Why has NBC failed to run a story on the Biden DOJ's personal or political prosecution of whistleblowers in the Hunter Biden cases? 
That's good. Why has the NBC failed to pretty pretty much run anything about the Hunter Biden slash Biden Inc. cases? That would be that, that discussion could take up uh, most of the ninety minutes. That'd be good. Bob Buffalo Grove. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, always great talking to you. You got it off to an excellent start this morning. This is a topic I wish the candidates would address and ask Kristen uh, Welker. You stole the election by withholding the laptop question at the last um, um, debate back in uh, 2020. And there's so many other questions we could ask. Like yesterday, I watched um, Georgie Stephanopoulos badger um, Steve Steve Scalise. Uh, I wish Scalise would have asked um, uh, Stephanopoulos why they're spinning the narratives and not talking about Biden, Inc., and why they're focusing on Trump's troubles. Great start this morning. I just wish more politicians would turn it back on the um, newscasters who are spinning the narratives. Thanks for the call, Bob. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, Kristen, do you regret now? Um, Have you come to the conclusion yet, Kristen, that uh, the Hunter laptop is real? Or are you still sticking with your all the earmarks of a Russian disinformation campaign position? If you had to go back, I mean, this is it really I mean, Hunter treat, has now admitted that the laptop is his. Yes, so you, you could treat them to. like politicians, right? Oh, if you true. if there was anything in your uh, first four years you would have done differently, what would it be? If there was anything in your last four years of debate moderation, Kristen Welker, you would have done differently. What would that be? Craig in Mount Greenwood. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy, and uh, thank you much for uh, taking my call. The first order of business should have been the GOP and all the Republicans interested in running everything all stick together and take care of this dog and pony show where Trump is getting ordered by corrupt judges and uh, prosecutors and everything and stand behind them and say, listen, um, there ain't going to be any anything going on other than getting uh, this thing halted with uh, basically uh, this injustice against Trump. He's our candidate. He's our, you know, like uh, the guy that's, uh, you know, in, in because they're all jumping on the bandwagon, so to speak, to take him because Trump's getting attacked rather than basically, uh, you know, uh, going after the injustice. It's not just against Trump. It's against the whole system of election, fair elections that they can go after this guy and everything like that who's our guy. I mean, you know, what do you think about that, Dan, that they should all stick together and avoid anything to do with the the next election other than Trump's the guy? Well, thanks for the call, Craig. I mean, everybody has a right to run. I mean, uh, the Iowa governor, Kim Reynolds, just endorsed DeSantis, I saw. That's huge. Iowa governors normally stay out of that until after the caucuses. But okay. Now, I I don't know that that changes much of what's happening in Iowa, but, um, you know, we'll see. You still got uh, some undecided. you still got two months until uh, the uh, Iowa caucus. Not a lot of time with the holidays in between, but but we'll see. Uh, now, on the flip side, uh, e- even if DeSantis won Iowa, looks like he's going to have a tough time winning Florida. So, you know, it's complicated out there. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not it's actually not that complicated. It's pretty straightforward where things stand now. But I mean, everybody gets their opportunity to pitch their wares and say, why they should be better. That's why we have elections. Right. It doesn't bother me that people are running. And, and no, frankly, I think it's kind of, well, I'm sorry for interrupting, but uh, I mean, people keep calling in, you know, they used to saying that we shouldn't even have a debate, that it's over. 
which I get one debate, but that those people should respect President Trump and drop out of the race. I mean, that's going to happen. That's what uh, that's what Donald Trump wants to happen. That's right. what Rick Scott <laughs> wants to happen, who endorsed Trump last week. That was a big endorsement coming from a former Florida governor, Florida senator, Rick Scott, that it's over and let's consolidate around Trump. Jeez. I mean, I get it, but I, I don't uh, I'm not upset with Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott making their case, making their run that we should have debates. The question is not about debates, but I mean, all the conservative outlets that exist in the landscape, you can pull a few moderators from all these different conservative outlets and uh, and have a presidential debate. How about Victor Davis Hanson moderates a presidential debate and and we, we put it on Twitter and every one of the conservative outlets around the, the globe amplifies it that would get just as big an audience as anything that nbc5 is or nbc5 nbc5 local nbc news generally is uh providing for the rnc rnc is making a huge mistake here huge mistake and they're making it again which is why it's so unnerving connect with dan and amy on the am 560 the answer mobile app just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Jesse Sr.'s baby boy, one of the uh, family of race hustlers, Jonathan Jackson, he's a congresswoman. Following in the footstep of his big brother, Jesse Jr., Oh, okay. That's how that went. I guess. That's his big brother. Yeah, you know, public offices are like family heirlooms in Chicagoland. People know this. <laughs> so it gets passed around. Mm. Uh, Jonathan Jackson uh, had a town hall about this uh, migrant matter, you know, that uh, proposed a base campsite at 115th and Halstead yeah. is in his district. It sure is. And people showed up, so many people showed up that they had to turn people away. It was at the I think South Shore Cultural Center. Here's uh, Jesse, uh, excuse me, uh, Jonathan Jackson's uh, right. statement of principle on this, and I'll tell you, I'm glad finally somebody said it. The state of Illinois is a sanctuary state. Chicago's a sanctuary city. This is not Chicago's burden alone. Exactly. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six D A turnkey dot pro text line. Um, we've of course, talked about this, particularly with the uh, monies that uh, Jelly Belly is trying to distribute to get uh, suburban communities to take up some of the uh, burden. That's their word, not mine. 
That's what they're calling. BLM Brandon is saying it's a burden. I don't know. I thought it was an opportunity. I thought this was great. I thought, well, we uh, have an opportunity to live and spend in furtherance of our values. And all of a sudden I'm hearing words like burden and problem and issue. I, I, I don't know. There's a real disconnect there. But um, what Chicago does, if you believe their characterization of this problem, what Chicago's always done, Chicago land socialize the problems in the city it is not the city proper's responsibility it is the region it is the state and i understand the argument that's made chicago's this economic engine and chicago throws off benefits to the surrounding communities and to some extent that's true it used to be a lot more true than it is today but regardless that's the sales pitch they've done that's the sales pitch that most suburbanites have bought and so Jonathan Jackson is right. We are a sanctuary state in Illinois, and um, it shouldn't take having to bribe local communities with resources for everybody to pitch in and do their part, right? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then the quick comment. And I heard, you know, people complaining, the regular complaints, like, well, what's... You know, these are our tax dollars. What's in it for us? You know, take care of people at home first. Take care of us first. But they're, they're, the tax, they're already spent. It's already a done deal. I mean, he's having these, I don't know why people keep having these uh, town halls because it's just smoke and mirrors. They've already made their decisions. They, that tent camp is going up at 115th and Halstead. Well, the, the resource question, too, it's our tax dollars and spent it for us. I don't understand that because... Look, this is a city and state that is governed by nothing but fiscal conservatives. <laughs> Everyone's a fiscal conservative. So I don't I, I haven't looked at it like everybody else. I haven't looked at the numbers, uh, or at least I'll pretend I haven't. So I assume we're flush with cash. So I can't imagine resources is an issue. And if it is an issue, well, that's easily solved. Uh, you got to stick it to the fat cats uh, in um, Chicago. I understand from. BLM branded. That's anybody who makes over a hundred thousand dollars. You know, uh, a little three for a million dollars. A little well, but but let's go a little a lot deeper than that. I mean, everybody makes a hundred grand. Give them that little three percent state uh, city income tax. What's three percent? If if you really need it, I mean, it's for a good cause, and it'll be spent responsibly. We we're governed by fiscal conservatives. Uh, If at the state level you're talking uh, need for equity. Uh, more equity than um, you uh, resuscitate Jelly Belly's graduated state income tax proposal. What's the problem there? Again, these are fiscal conservatives. They have made Illinois this magnet for business and people traveling the world over, literally, to come to Chicago. So, I mean, if you're a city resident, what's a 3% kicker on the old income? If you're a uh, an Illinois resident who's done well thanks to the great leadership political leadership that we have and civic leadership that we have then you know what's paying a little bit more to even out the distribution of the tax burden well, that's what i say and congressman jackson said because president biden's coming to chicago on thursday wouldn't it be a great time dan for them to tour some of these police stations to see what's been going on so he could see firsthand what open border policy looks like but also congressman jackson said uh, at that time i know on. Yeah, he's not going to do it. But he said at that time, you know, I'm going to ask him for more federal funds to help us with this situation. Well, I don't. Again, I, the more, why do we need more federal funds? We're Illinois. Yeah, darn we it. Solve, 
we solve our own problems. We are the one of the best governed states in the country. We're attracting people. That's what I understand from the governor. So I all this this cognitive dissonance. I've been told this story about how Illinois is the beacon on the hill. It's oh, the it's a it's the shining city. It's going very well. Very We've done an incredible job. All we do is balance budgets. All we do is attract companies that grow jobs. We expand. We have companies here that expand their operations because it's so hospitable. We have great schools with great teachers run by great teachers unions and everything couldn't be better. So what is all this? We can't handle being a welcoming city, living and spending and furtherance our values for for, for 20,000 of our of friends we haven't made yet. Um, look, um, I've already got it solved. I mean, okay, we've, we, we solved this on the show a while back, but now I've got the numbers. This is easy. So, but before I even get into the weeds on this, let me just say, Governor Abbott, keep the buses rolling. Catholic Charities, keep the flights running. We, we have plenty of capacity. We're going to be the best when it comes to welcome, being welcoming. Um, we looked at the Chicago Public Schools over at Chicago City Wire. Um, Chicago Public Schools has is under capacity with existing buildings by 160,000. Wow. So uh, 43 high schools built for 62,100 students have just 19,215 students. So there's four, almost 43,000 right there. That's almost 1,000 per high school. In these 43 high schools, oh, yeah. another 247 uh, K through eight schools, middle and elementary schools have uh, uh, capacity for 202, 920. They have 87, 942 enrolled. Oh, That's room for another 115 grand round numbers. Mm-hmm. So you got a room for 43 at these 43 high schools, 43,000. And you got room for 115,000 at these K through eight schools, these elementary and middle, middle schools. I mean, uh, right? Is this is this obvious? Do I need to put an exclamation point on it? And I mean, the nice thing too is uh, the so- so- Southwest Sides or South Side Schools, I should say, ninety five thousand of that uh, of that overall one hundred sixty thousand in terms of excess capacity. Humble Park has room for 6,100, Little Village 6,000, Inglewood 4,800, Roseland 4,500, Auburn Gresham 4,300, Logan Square 4,200. I mean, I don't know. what's the problem? But it's so strange because um, the Alderman, in the 115th in Halston, uh, Morris, what's his name? Alderman Morsley? Ah. Ronnie Mosley? Ronnie Mosley, yes, yes. He's worried about the schools. He said if all these mi- migrants come to 115th and Halstead, the schools aren't going to be able to handle the load. What are you talking oh, about? What are you talking about? You've got so much <laughs> open seats. Are you kidding me? Handle Look the at your load. Records. Southside is home to 162 oh of the 291 schools uh, with excess capacity. Total excess capacity 95,000. <laughs> he could take you know 500, 600 kids. And you people say, and people say, well, well, wait a second. You know, you don't want uh, uh, you know adults and families um, in the same space as kids. First of all, these things are so cavernous and so empty, they never see each other or they wouldn't have to. Number two, what are you talking about? This is an opportunity 
to connect the kids with our values. There you go, Dan. Now you're selling it. They can tell the stories of the migrants uh-huh. and share their stories with the migrants. This is putting the village together that it takes to raise a child. I mean, could this be any more straightforward? I, I honestly, I'm, I don't even know after getting all the numbers in what all this consternation is about these town hall meetings and so on and so forth. Uh, perhaps they just haven't been told the wonderful news. So please share it. Please share it with your friends and neighbors so we can stop having these uncomfortable town hall meetings so I can stop listening to the residents in Jonathan Jackson's district like, um, well, like uh, this guy, Mr. Wallace. Oh, I... Ugh. Who um, had, what he said. had this to say? I mean, this is he the takeaway. This is the takeaway from uh, the these town hall meetings. Once it's all laid out, and you know, after Jonathan Jackson gets uh, done blaming Greg Abbott and MAGA Republicans and so on and so forth. All right, here's a Southside resident or Jonathan Jackson congressional district resident named Mark Wallace. Here's his takeaway. It's a federal issue. The federal government is responsible for that. And so Congress needs to get together. Uh, the Republicans have to work with the, with the Democrats and fix the problem. Uh, this is being, these are poor people who are being used for other people's political gains. Yeah, whose political gains, uh, Mark? Mr. Wallace. I can't believe they interviewed him. I saw that. And of I course they him. did. I, I, my, my face got red. I was so angry. So, um, yeah, these poor. But but what do you mean? It's, what is this problem business? This is a federal problem. What's the problem? People want to be here. Mm-hmm. People can't be illegal. These are people that are um, yearning to breathe free to a person. We're a sanctuary city. They're here. We do what we do. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the 10th police district, I don't know if you saw this, an illegal deliberately dumped a load, defecated on a heating unit uh, while two porta potties and a bathroom were nearby. Residents of the well, lobby is... notified no, that there was an individual uh, resting okay. on the floor while what? officers walked by. Residents observed the brown items clumped together. The smell was consistent. Fecal matter. Uh, okay, the, you, you have a slumber. Yeah, it yes, up. just that. Just. just. Well, can you, you imagine have, you a, working like that, uh, going to yeah. work? Well, this is, first of all, you have a slumber party. People are going to play pranks. Big deal. You're going to tell me a migrant stuck another migrant's finger in a cup of water and he pissed himself? No, the I resident mean, they on. thought was drunk. He, he defecated so on this the is, floor. This so is where, this is where you get them into the schools that have all this capacity. And then you get bunk beds and it's... You know, it'd be like, I don't know, I assume it'll be hijinks will ensue. It'll be like, it'd be like stripes. Everybody have fun. They'll be playing cards. They'll, you know, after they get home from work. Well, there'll be ping pong tables. Be fine. Tables. They'll be out uh, uh, playing soccer with the kids, or I guess it's indoors now. I don't know. They, they'll probably be some prospective volleyball talent for you. Uh-huh. Do you see the boxing match outside the seventh district? They just these two kids put on gloves and they were boxing, and people are throwing down money. Organized yeah. boxing. It wasn't a fight. It wasn't assault. It was you know both. Yeah. Well, I mean. Mutual yeah, you, combatants, so to speak, Dan. 
you got to pass the time. We did the same thing in the Caddyshack when I was growing up. You're going to play quarters. You're going to go play basketball or baseball. You're going to have a fight. You're going to rob a Walmart of a karaoke machine so you can You're going to defecate on a heater. I mean, it's just like what, you know, you're just passing the time. Of all the places. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. And sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Dan and Amy, on this installment, we go to Massachusetts, a uh, female hockey playoff game between uh, a couple of high schools there. Uh, Dighton, Rehoboth Regional High School, and Swampscott. Interestingly, uh, Swampscott, that community, is where NCAA President and past Governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, lives, according to uh, our friend Riley Gaines over at the Independent Women's Forum, because she asked him to comment on what transpired. What transpired was that Swampscott has a man... You know, young man playing on the girls team and he took a shot wound up and took a shot that uh, hit a female player on the opposing team in the face uh, facial injuries knocked out at least a couple of her teeth she had to be hospitalized and you can oh, hear if you watch it yeah the oh. when the girls see what happened to this other girl the screaming they walk off the field so on and so forth so of course this has renewed the discussion about men playing girls sports, boys playing girls sports because of many other things, the potential for serious injury. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. And if you watch the video, I mean, you can hear he hit, he on a female team hits the ball so hard. It's like, and then it hits the stick of a teammate's stick and then ricocheted right into her mouth. And you can hear... 
the impact. And then she's out of her mind. Like, she's delusional. I'm sure she's going to be concussed. I mean, there's no way. I mean, she's, you know, had to go to the hospital, so we'll find out later. But her teeth were knocked out, and there's blood everywhere. It's just, it's not fair. This is not a safe situation. I thought we wanted safe spaces for women, Dan. That we wanted opportunities for women. And this is the exact opposite. The uh, superintendent of the uh, school that uh, the girl who was injured attends is now all of a sudden calling for the uh, Massachusetts Athletic Association to reconsider the rules governing boys playing girls sports. But on the other side, Swampscott's athletic director confirmed the the player took the shot was a male four-year varsity student co-captain. Of course. And firmly believes the male student, quote, has the exact same right to participate as any player on any team. Uh, The uh, state association... Their, our version of the, their version of the IHSA. So the organization supports our 383 member schools and all student-athletes as we strive to create a welcoming, safe, and belonging atmosphere for all participants. And they're hiding behind the Massachusetts Equal Rights Amendment, of uh, which, of course, in the infinite wisdom of the Pauls and the electorate in Massachusetts was passed in 1979 that prohibits discrimination based on gender regardless of the gender that you make up. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. I mean, people should know, too, that this player, she wore a mouth guard and headgear, and the ball was hit so hard it penetrated through both of those. Well, you know, it's just uh, one of those uh, freak accidents. Um, It's nothing to get too worked up about, and the larger goal of – Inclusion. Uh, I mean, you had a hockey player, the terrible incident that a hockey player, I was a minor league hockey player, right, who, who got killed on the ice when uh, a guy was flipped and his skate slashed him in the throat. Yeah, and he's still, he might be charged, though, because, you know, there's rumblings that he did it on purpose, did a high kick. Um, I'm sure he didn't mean to slice his throat and kill him. Uh, uh, okay, let's not go down that rabbit hole. I saw the video. I mean, I saw the video too. It's yeah, disgusting. I, I, I don't. I don't think that didn't look intentional to me. But that's not the point of this discussion. The point of this discussion, if we could stay on topic for five seconds, well, you brought up it, the hockey thing. I don't know. Yeah, I brought it up in the context of this being a freak accident, okay. not something endemic to the sport. Do, if you'd like to comment on that, that's staying on topic. Just a freak accident. That's what they'll say. It's also interesting that the uh, player, the dude who hit this girl in the mouth with the field ho- with the you know field hockey ball, uh, scored both goals. The only two goals that were scored in the game. Something else that's missing from the discussion that I've seen online too, which is missing from this larger discussion. Four-year varsity co-captain. Yeah, I saw pictures of this guy with his female teammates at the Swamp Scott High School. Mm-hmm. Could you pick him out easily? Yeah, that's not the point. The point is that um, uh, he, the girls are very friendly with him. I mean, they've got pictures of him where you know the, where they're you know playing around and they're all like holding him up and. Um, He's obviously completely accepted, if not celebrated, and I'm sure celebration is 
what he's receiving, or at least has been receiving until this incident. I mean, he's and they will, him. and they will chalk it up as a as a freak accident. The acceptance of the girls. Anybody want to talk about that piece of it? They probably think they're being so woke, and oh, look at us, we're so accepting. And Yeah, I wonder where they get that from. Teachers and their coaches. Society. There's a good, good piece um, by a, a British psychologist named Pam Spur over at Spiked Online. The rise of gender ideology in British schools has me fearing for my three young granddaughters. You might think it's, that's excessive, but the trans takeover of British schools is no small matter. An unscientific belief is now being pushed as fact, and our children are being bombarded with two ludicrous ideas, namely that a person can change sex and that there are countless made-up genders to choose from. Uh, again, she's a practicing, practicing psychologist. One gender group can, claims there are 58 genders to choose from. Another offers 72. Meanwhile, one 2021 BBC program aimed at children aged between 9 and 11 said there were over 100 genders. New genders are being invented all the time. These made-up gender identities tend to pander to childish, fanciful minds. After all, what child interested in science and outer space wouldn't enjoy calling themselves astral gender and feeling somehow connected to the galaxy? I imagine many children might identify with the so-called burst gender. These are real things. Well, they're not real things, but they're real made-up genders. When they uh, burst gender, when they experience sudden spikes of intense emotion and liveliness. Um, while many adults rightly recognize the absurdity of this ideology, they make the mistake of believing that children won't fall for it. They assume children are astute at recognizing fact from fiction. However, one crucial thing I've learned from working in child and adolescent mental health is that young children generally absorb what they are told by adults about life, especially from adults in positions of authority. And this is what you have going on in the schools. This is the key point when you get to something more serious than the flighty I'm astral gender or burst gender. When you get to the uh, that guy identifying as a girl as a girl. Well, that's being inculcated. Young children generally absorb what they're told by adults about life, especially from adults in positions of authority. They don't think critically through what teachers tell them. They're often blank slates teachers can write on. And if that writing states that girls can be boys and vice versa, kids will sadly take that as truth. That's what you're saying. And that's what you see with this situation with the field hockey team in Massachusetts. Bill, Northwest Side, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, I think the real answer to this is that the girls and the parents of these girls have to say no. If there's a male on the other team... We will not participate. And to the parents of these girls, why in God's name would you put your daughter in danger and let her participate if she could get hurt? It's common sense. You're not going to wait for the government to do the right thing. They're not going to do the right thing. And by the time they do the right thing, your daughter will may end up in the hospital with two missing front teeth. Thanks for the call, Bill. Well, um, how many of the parents have bought the same line or... More to the point, Dr. Spur are too afraid to step out. I mean, this is the we when we talk about uh, girls playing boys sports, men playing women's sports. 
everybody has the obvious response. So girls boycott or boys boycott. In other words, um, I, the, 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 the male wrestler is not going to wrestle a female wrestler because he doesn't want to hurt her. Uh, boxing, you know, contact sports. Right. Uh, or the, in this case, right, the female swimmers or the female cross-country runners or the female field hockey teams, they're just going to, they just should boycott en masse. Okay, well, they should do that. People I'm, should do this and people should do that. Well, why aren't they? I made my foster son wrestle a girl because that's who he was assigned to wrestle. And I said, she wants, she signed up for this, so do what you need to do. And he was done in 18 seconds. Respectfully. I mean, nothing, you know, he, he didn't hurt her or anything, but it's like, you know what? Yeah, and I felt, I bet he felt great about himself. What a victory. No, he, I mean, he, he signed up to wrestle, and that was his opponent, so he wrestled her. I showed you the video, remember? It was a few years ago. Well, um, so there you go. Everybody just act like this is normal. Well, they act are. Like there's, yeah. Act like there's nothing wrong with this. Just let's just get through this and let's not make a big stink about anything. Well, boys should just do this. The parents should just do that. The girls should just do. Yeah, right. No, it's easy to say. Who do you see leading the charge other than perhaps Riley Gaines? And she even she's not necessarily calling for boycotts. She just she's calling for rules changes at the governing body level or at the legislative level, which is fine and appropriate. But what about at the individual action level to build from the northwest size point? If you had, um, uh, as we talked about last week with the cross-country uh, final, state, you know, the state competition in cross-country, if you had all the girls say, I'm not participating, well, that would make international news because it doesn't happen. So the common sense answer, the common sense response, do this, do that, well, so... Where is it? I, I mentioned this before. We've played this clip before because I think it's just such a great calling of the question. And it's even better that it's coming from a dude who goes by Veronica Ivy, who participates in female cycling events. Oh, by the way, related story. American cyclist uh, dude uh, has now won his 10th medal as a woman after taking first place at uh, a um, Chicago cycling event uh, just this past October 29th. Uh, winning events in Anderson Park and Comp in uh, Campton Township, Illinois. That gave Tessa Johnson his ninth and 10th medals as a female cyclist. Uh, the Chicago Cyclocross Cup at, at Anderson Park in Campton Township. Gold medal in two events. Congratulations, dude. You must be so proud. So for back to Veronica Ivy. Yes. Call the question. How do you answer it? And then how do you act in furtherance of your answer? This issue, people like to say that it's a complicated issue, and I don't actually think it is. I think it's very simple. It all boils down to do you actually think that trans women and intersex women are real women? And are really female mm -hmm. or not? And if you do, it's very simple. If you do, it's exactly right. Do you think that men masquerading as women are women? And if you do, the answer is very simple. And if you don't, the answer is very simple, too. So what do you think? What's your answer? 
And then what are you going to do about it? That's a simple question that you should put to every you should put yourself first and then you should ask every politician and every coach and every uh, uh, state sports association administrator and the NCAA president, Charlie Baker, former Massachusetts governor. Are women masquerading as women actual women? If yes, you go one direction. If no, then ostensibly you would go another direction. Ostensibly. Stephen Bolingbrook. Hi. You know, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. I'm uh, going to suggest that things are not bad enough. Not enough people have been hurt personally. And when that does happen, we will stand up in mass. And full transparency, I'm doing nothing. Thanks for the call, Steve. Well, when it, when it, right. It's, it's not bad enough yet. The old, the old, it's not bad enough yet. Well, um, right. If you do nothing though, then you're anticipating it will get worse, right? Or it just works itself out. It just goes away. The, uh, it just works itself out. It goes away. Or when it gets bad enough, then people will rise up. By the time it gets bad enough for the people who are saying, I'm waiting till it gets bad enough, it's too late. Right. <laughs> I mean, the hit was so grotesque and so vulgar in nature that two of her players almost got sick. Like, they, they couldn't even look. They looked at her, and then they looked away, and they walked off the field. They were, I mean, it was awful. It's a terrible policy. It's going to produce bad results. Girls are going to get hurt. But until it comes to my household or until I think it's reached a bad enough threshold, I'm just going to be a, a, a spectator. And people wonder why things are the way they are in a place like Illinois. Marie in Kenosha. Well, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um it was a late last week. One of the other uh, programs on your on this radio station brought up the fact that there is a psychological condition of some men that get a sexual high off of hurting and humiliating women, and that's part of this. Okay, uh, Marie, uh, Joe in Naperville. Yeah. Um, hey, Dan, your question about the politicians answering if it's a man or a woman. Remember, Katanji Brown couldn't even answer that question. She's sitting on the Supreme Court. She doesn't know what a woman is. Right. Yeah. Right. right. But you're not looking at the silver lining this whole thing. The silver lining is I could do whatever I want. So I'm going to be six years old, and I'm going to get the home run record on my son's peewee uh, t-ball team. And I'm also going to say I'm half a Native American Indian, so I could get some of that Ho-Chunk casino money. Thanks for the call. Yeah, we could. It'll be like uh, that Jason Bateman uh, black comedy, Bad Words, where he's uh, he was an eighth grade dropout who entered the uh, the uh, spelling bee uh-huh. through a loophole. Remember that film? Did you see that? Pretty I did funny, not. actually. I'm sure, you'd be shocked that I didn't see it. Uh, I got a text message. Dan and Amy, isn't it ironic that the equal rights laws were passed in order to protect women in society? And now they're being used as cover for men in women's sports. It's not. It's not ironic at all. It was inevitable. But people are so bad at connecting dots, thinking through the implications. Marriage redefinition. Oh, yeah. 
the the, you the great us about that. Some of the great thinkers on the left. I mean, excuse me, on the right. Again, ostensibly, Jonah Goldberg's of the world and others. Civil unions is fine. Marriage death is fine. And now they are railing against uh, men playing girls' sports. Didn't think through the implications very deeply, did you? Yeah, ironic. It's ironic when you start um, introducing the government into the business of conferring benefits and imposing responsibilities based on non-behavioral characteristics like race and gender. No, it's not ironic that it would become the snake that eats its tail. It was inevitable. Mike in Littleton, Colorado. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Just two quick things. The, uh, these schools should be empty. Parents should say, no, men can't be women. Women can't be men. My kid's out of here. But that would require sacrifice at a depth that most people aren't willing to do. Well, we have to live on one income. We have to sell the McMansion, et cetera. So, you know, tonight, yeah, by the way, just, by the way, Mike, just as a quick aside, I mean, I, I mentioned Charlie Baker lives in this community where this high school is located that has the dude on the girls field hockey team. That is a well-heeled community. These are, two, you know, high schools from two well-heeled communities that were uh, competing against one another in this girls field hockey team, to your point. But anyway, go ahead. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you know, tonight, the uh, the part of the uh, the scumbag is paid is played by the, uh, you know, the electorate. And, you know, I'm not equating the two, so please forgive me if it sounds like I'm going there, but the mechanics are the same. You know, the Nazis were really not the problem. The evil was the people who did nothing about them. And that's where we are in this country. It's like it's staring us in the face. This, you know, I, it's, it's beyond idiocy. It's not idiocy. It's evil. And everyone's like, thanks for the call, Mike. Yeah, the uh, banality of uh, falsehood, I guess, to bar to paraphrase Hannah Arendt. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We've uh, mentioned a couple of pieces written by Eva Moskowitz over the last uh, week, 10 days, uh, because they've been so uh, on point talking about K-12 through education. And uh, local politics, too, particularly in big blue city America. But we haven't mentioned her new book, which is why we wanted to have her on the show to talk a little bit about that as well. Eva Moskowitz is the founder and CEO of Success Academy Charter School, former New York City council member. That must have been fun. And author of the recently released A-Plus Parenting, the surprisingly fun guide to raising surprisingly smart kids. Eva Moskowitz, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we get to the uh, book, the piece you wrote about the business community uh, being AWOL in local politics, and um, uh, I mean, this has been written about before. This is where, for example, a George Soros intercedes and says, well, I get the biggest bang for my uh, political dollar by supporting, say, for example, uh, states' attorneys in races for state or district attorney 
where they're not they don't have the expense of uh, a governor's race or a federal race or certainly a presidential race and so I can have maximum impact with my available resources um, but also in the context even of school choice programs and policy debates we see that in Chicago in fact I've been lamenting that for oh I don't know decades now that um, there's a lot of discussion in these clubs the economic club of Chicago and our civic federation where the C-suites C-suite types get together and they uh talk about how the city should be versus what it is, but those conversations usually end in those boardrooms because they don't want to get into the messy business of politics. They don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to take risks, even if they're otherwise basically untouchable because of their wealth. It's very frustrating. And so I I wonder if you've gotten any feedback from your piece challenging those people. They know who they are to be more active as we see big cities like New York and Chicago, San Francisco, beset by all kinds of societal ills, in part from terrible public policy choices. Yeah, I mean, look, national politics is also important. I think, though, that there are an increasing number of areas in public policy that are actually diminishing uh, free enterprise in particular, and that if that's a value that our um, business community and citizens hold dear, they're going to have to fight for it. It's not just going to be preserved um, because of our founding fathers or Alexander Hamilton. It's going to have to work. It's going to require that we get into the mosh pit and Sorry about that. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish your answer. Oh, just that that it's important. And obviously, uh, education is almost exclusively local and state. And so uh, and that represents uh, a very sizable portion of local government's budget. And yet, there is a kind of missing in action uh, component of the business community, and I think that's unfortunate. Let me be generous to the business community for a second, which is sort of against my nature um, in terms of their <laughs> participation in politics. You know, part of it, somebody might say, is, look, um, I, I want to protect free enterprise, as Eva Moskowitz wrote about. I want the next generation of kids to respect our free enterprise system, to get involved, to get jobs early, to work their way up the corporate ladder or start a business and be successful like I was. I want all that. I just don't know where to intersect. Should I fight? You know, which policy should I, I fight over? Which Where should I put my resources and even before you get to on who should uh, I put my resources? So, I mean, are there any like foundational issues or an example of a foundational issue where you say, you know, this should be an all hands on deck issue? Well, I, I pointed out a couple of examples in the op ed that when employment uh, at will is being contested by uh, sort of you know, extreme sort of left-wing politicians, that would just be really, really unfortunate. And I would think the business community would be protective of its freedom to hire the most um, qualified and let go if the person is not performing 
at the level that they need to. I don't think you want local government um, tying, and it's not just the business community, it's the not-for-profit community. I mean, we need to hire and let go on the merits even more so because we're serving a vulnerable population. Uh, On the uh, matter of K-12 education, since you've had such success with the Success Academy, um, we just got our report card for the state of Illinois last week from the Illinois State Board of Education. Uh, 1.85 million kids in the system. Round numbers, about a third read at grade level and about one-fourth do math at grade level. And as you might expect, the numbers just in the city of Chicago are significantly worse, and the numbers for minority students, which make up a supermajority of the students in CPS, are even worse than that. So um, your reaction, because um, we in Chicago we spend $30,000 per kid. It's statewide we spend $24,000 per kid, and we're, we continue to tell what we've been told for 50 years, that we just need more money. Yeah, and I would just um, say that being on grade level in a globally competitive economy is insufficient. These Mm. tests that that data is based on um, are incredibly easy. And so that is a a floor. That is not the goal. Any parent, I'm the mother of three, I always wanted my kids to be above grade level, as most parents do, because they recognize that in a globally competitive economy, um, your kids are not going to do very well. So the, that data that you cited is shocking, uh, although um, not surprising, if that's not an oxymoron. Shocking, it shocks the sensibility because we're spending so much, and this story is repeated all over America. We spend more than any country around the globe, and somewhere between uh, two-thirds and one-third of our children are failing miserably. And that's an adult problem, and that's a political problem. We know how to teach kids to read. We know how to teach kids to count. We know how to teach kids to think scientifically and mathematically. And yet schools, so many schools in America, are really warehousing children. They're handing out worksheets, collecting worksheets, not giving kids any feedback, And, you know, we need the citizens of this great country of ours to demand better. And that's going to require innovation. If we keep on doing what we've been doing for the last 30, 40 years, we should not be surprised that we have such poor results. We're spending more money and doing a poorer job. Yeah, here in Chicago, it's 30K per pupil, which is, I don't know what they're getting from that. So how can parents you know, become A-plus parents? What can they do to get involved to help improve these horrific reading and math scores? Well, I wrote the book for a couple of reasons, um, but the primary one uh, is really that there are a lot of, there's a lot of advice for parents on, you know, toileting and uh, the emotional, social and emotional growth of your children, all of which are practical and important, but there wasn't a book on raising intellectually vibrant children. And I wouldn't assume as a parent that the schools got it, and you as a parent don't have to worry about it. 
A, because the school may not have it, as the data you cited suggested, but actually kids spend still much more time at home than they do in school. And you as a parent want to make sure that your kids become self-driven learners, if you will. And so there are a lot of easy, not particularly time-consuming things you can do with your kids, which, by the way, are also uh, enjoyable for parents. Uh, so I, this is a how-to book. It's not meant for coverage. You don't have to do every activity in the book. Pick those that you find interesting. So there are game recommendations. There are movie recommendations. There are, um, you know, lyrics that are particularly intellectually stimulating. Uh, there are great poems that you can read to your kids, great short stories. And the book is just meant to be super practical, super helpful for parents. Yeah, no, I like that. I like the uh, incorporation of different mediums, too, um, particularly movies. I mean, I'm not saying that people shouldn't read, but there's so there is amid all of the dreck, there is a lot of great art that's created and it's a, and it's just another way that that uh, kids and young people can take in information and process and think about it and and you know maybe it's more interactive in some respects than than reading is absolutely and I find the social you know we uh, in the Moskowitz Granis uh, household as I mentioned I have three kids I'm uh, an empty nester now so my kids are off to college uh, but we still have family movie night. And not only are there an incredible number of great films, but then you end up puzzling over them. One kid liked it, another kid didn't. What did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? What do you think the meaning was? It actually makes the dinner, the post-movie dinner time conversation quite lively because you've had this shared experience. So what are some of the movies you've watched? Curious. Well, everything from, you know, I'm a big Humphrey Bogart fan, so Casablanca to The African Queen, all of the Hitchcock films. Uh, we just, uh, you know, uh, love uh, sort of the old uh, black and white uh, movies, but even more uh, contemporary movies. My kids loved uh, The In-Laws, uh, you know, uh it's a beautiful life. Uh, we watch foreign films. Uh, we every Sunday we watched a movie. Hmm. So s steering clear of like the Matthew McConaughey, Jennifer Lopez <laughs> oeuvres, probably a good idea. Um, so um, something else, though, too, I mean, just to, to with uh, respect to the, your experience in education, uh, I just wanted you to get to this because I know this is important. The um, utility of chess. Hmm. I mean, I'm just such a believer in the game. Uh, my, uh, I started playing with my eldest son when he was three or four, and at our schools we have 11,000 kids playing chess. And what I love about chess is that it is uh, a thinking person's game where language is off the table because the game is played silently. Uh, and the better players... Um, you know, when we compete, our kids compete and uh, tend to uh, decimate other teams around the country. Uh, they're playing, uh, each player gets two hours on the clock. And the slower players are the better players. So in addition to just um, 
uh, you know, kind of uh, over-indexing or, or doubly indexing on thinking, chess gets kids to have a level of focus and concentration that helps them in their academic life in, and in all other aspects of their life. Um, and with chess, there is something called notation. So if you and I are playing chess, I'm writing down your moves and my moves in response, and then I can debrief the entire game. When you did this, could I have made a better move? When I made this move, could you have made um, a stronger move? So built into the game with notation is a constant debriefing of the game, which increases the learning density tremendously. Eva Moskowitz is the founder and CEO of Success Academy Charter Schools in New York City, a former New York City council member. Her new book, A-Plus Parenting, The Surprisingly Fun Guide to Raising Surprisingly Smart Kids. Eva Moskowitz, thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations on all your success for those kids in your schools, and best of luck with the book. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560 The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, uh, the big guy, Mr. 10%, President Biden and company, having a real difficult time dealing with the Hamas caucus in their party in the Congress, particularly the House. The Hamas caucus, you know, the Socialist Spice Girls, individuals like MF or Spice, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Hamas propagandist, Rashida Tlaib. She has posted a new video telling uh, POTUS that uh, she and they are not with him on this one, that he is supporting genocide in Palestine. We will remember in 2024. We will remember in 2024 you supported a genocide of the Palestinian people, Support a ceasefire now or don't count on us in 2024. And if you watch the entire minute and a half video, yeah. uh, you know, that's mostly imagery, not audio. Um, it's uh, all of the uh, Hamas propaganda combined with uh, amplifying the intemperate protests that are going on in the West, particularly America. Well, on Saturday, I mean, they tried to storm the White House and they came up with a new name for President Biden. Genocide Joe needs to halt his actions immediately and realize that he's going to face massive opposition from Democrat voters next election. And it's interesting, too, because um, Biden has not exactly been a profile in courage throughout. They were slow to react. Then they reacted stridently in support of Israel with his national nationally televised address to the nation. And then since in the last week, as we talked about a bit on Friday with Brett Baer, uh, it's really been watered down. There's a lot of equivocating going on and 
and using euphemisms for a ceasefire like humanitarian pause. So is that more disturbing, coming from inside the people's house, literally? Or is what we saw on the streets of Beirut attendant to the first televised speech since October 7th by Hezbollah's terrorist leader, Hassan Nasrallah, now, again, I, I can't take what I saw on the streets of Beirut at face value. It's hard to make a, a layman determination on about how much is propaganda. But uh, listen to some of what he said in his hour and a half long address to the Muslim world and um, some of the reaction you saw on the screen with certainly thousands, I don't know, maybe hundreds of thousands on the streets of Lebanon cheering on Nasrallah. Here is a little flavor of what we're dealing with. We offer our condolences and at the same time congratulate you as your loved ones have won this honor, the honor of martyrdom. Those fallen martyrs have won, and it is sufficient to go to our holy scripture, the Quran, to read what God Almighty said about them. And we are entitled to take pride in them. And we must take pride in uh, the terrorist acts that were committed by Hamas. Yes. Uh, and, propaganda. and then he uh, issued this warning to the United States. And I mean, this is a, a concern. We'll get to this momentarily with uh, John Bolton. But certainly this is a concern, a concern because the question is, will Hezbollah expand the war? Uh, will this region uh, become even more violent than it is at present? Here's Nasrallah's warning to the United States of sorts. Development of events in Gaza. It is the first factor. The development of events in Gaza. That's why this front will devolve according to the nature of development in Gaza and what is required. The second factor that is in play is the conduct and the demeanor of the Zionist enemy towards Lebanon. And here, once again, I warn you not to go further as many civilians have fallen as martyrs. And this will bring us to the same equation, a civilian for a civilian. Again, the demeanors of the enemy against Lebanon will be a factor in play. I am speaking openly, candidly, and at the same time with ambiguity, constructive ambiguity. All scenarios are open. All scenarios are open on our Lebanese southern front. I reiterate, all scenarios are open, all options are laid out, and we can adopt any at any point of time. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Bolton, former ambassador, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., former assistant to the president for national security affairs, 
author of the book, The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. John Bolton, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you. So uh, is that uh, beating the drums of war by Nasrallah, or is it just saber-rattling? Well, I think uh, he, he almost used the American phrase, all options are on the table. That's clearly what he means. I mean, I, I, think it's, I think you have to put what's going on in a strategic perspective, which the White House uh, has certainly failed to do, maybe unable to do, because it can't acknowledge what the real cause here is. Uh, and that is that Israel, one of our most important allies, is under sustained attack and threats of attack uh, by a coalition of some of our worst enemies, led by Iran, but now, uh, at, at least at the political level, uh, involving Russia as well. Uh, I, I can't say I can see clearly what the Iranian strategy is, but I think they've gamed it out, and it's 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 being played out. We don't have a strategy at all. The White House is uh, is just absent uh, without leave on this point, worried about uh, humanitarian pauses uh, in Gaza when, in fact, Israel is directly threatened. Our Arab friends in the region are indirectly threatened. We are indirectly threatened, although American forces and other personnel in the region are directly threatened by Iranian surrogates. So uh, Obama can, uh, sorry, Freudian slip, Biden can talk about all his his efforts to get uh, the war from expanding more broadly. We are already in a broader war, and our failure to understand that uh, is crippling our ability to deal with it. So Anthony Blinken visited the West Bank yesterday. What was the purpose of his trip? Well, to see the uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, uh, which would purportedly be the group that would take over Gaza once Hamas is destroyed. This is another part of the fantasy, because they're still talking about a two-state solution, which uh, died a long time ago and is certainly not something Israel is going to agree to in light of the October 7 attacks. I mean, I think we've got to confront the reality that for almost 75 years now, people have have imagined uh, the, the, the status of the people in Gaza and the West Bank incorrectly. You know, Palestinian refugees are the only refugees that got that way by hereditary status. All other refugees, all other refugees around the world uh, are only the people who actually had to leave their country of origin to go somewhere else. But Palestinians have been made refugees for 75 years because going back to the beginnings of Israel, the Arab world wanted to use the refugees as a weapon against Israel. Now, obviously, Israel is not going to accept them back, and the rest of the Arab world doesn't want them either. Is it possible that um, Iran is is using uh, all this uh, uh, overheated rhetoric, like you heard from Nasrallah, as a misdirection play, that they're not really interested in expanding the war beyond Gaza, they're not really interested in providing um, any support, any additional support to Hamas, and they provide as a matter of course, and they're using this uh, to buy more time to develop their nuclear weapons program while we're focused here? Well, I think that's a possible scenario. And, and indeed, uh, as I said, I, I can't say with certainty what their end game is other than uh, they want to uh, inflict maximum damage on uh, Israel at minimal cost to themselves, to Iran. Let, let's be clear, the mullahs in Tehran could not care less about the fate of the Palestinian uh, people in Gaza, or the West Bank for that matter. This is all about the campaign against Israel. It's about the mullah's desire to dominate the Islamic world. 
there's a lot going on in the background that I, I think the administration just isn't getting, and we're not talking about uh, at the national political level. But the risk is that because we don't have a strategy, the Iranians can call the shots. Maybe they will escalate. Maybe they will unleash Hezbollah against Israel in the north. Uh, the fact is Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthi rebels in Yemen uh, have been uh, armed, equipped, trained, and financed by Iran, not for their convenience, but for the convenience of Iran to unleash when it suits the mullah. What's happening now? So if that happens, then what should our response be? Well, look, I think, uh, you, you know, the, the, the first red line that we have to be clear about is when Biden says, that attacks on Americans are going to result in consequences for Iran. That red line has already been violated, uh, and there's every risk it's going to happen further. And that, that's what his first concern should be, the safety of Americans. But second, Israel is our ally, and it is under attack. Uh, and to put obstacles in their way uh, to trying to eliminate right now the Hamas threat, uh, I just find unconscionable. And, and those obstacles you're referring to are specifically what? Well, the idea of a humanitarian pause. Uh, you know, the the Hamas leadership has been conducting this buildup under the pretense of living peacefully with Israel for years. Uh, and their deception campaign, their propaganda efforts, disinformation, uh, was obviously enormously successful uh, on October the 7th. Now we're supposed to turn around and believe that they're good for their word, that they're not using hospital basements to store ammunition and tunnels down into their network, that they're not using ambulances to transport Hamas fighters, uh, and that all of the materials coming into the Gaza Strip will be distributed not to Hamas fighters, but to the noncombatants. Really? We're supposed to believe that? Uh, should we be gaming out, and, and perhaps this is occurring privately, but gaming out uh, more publicly, uh, what happens to Gaza after uh, Israel uh, ideally eradicates Hamas uh, in terms of governance? Should we be reaching out to uh, Muslim allies, even even dubious ones like the Saudis, to try to cobble together some sort of uh, uh, Arab-led uh, coalition that would provide governance in Gaza after the fact, or uh, is it too early to do that? Is that even possible in a couple of different directions? What, what about the post-eradication uh, of Hamas? Well, I, I think if you don't address the fundamental question, you're just going to have a repeat of this over over an extended period of time. Let's take the Palestinian leadership's uh, statements at face value, that they consider themselves to be um, and that's the way they've been treated the past 75 years. It is fundamental refugee policy uh, enshrined by the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees and many others that uh, where possible, refugees should go back to their country of origin. That's not going to happen here because Israel's not going to take them back. Uh, and if the refugees can't go back to their of origin, they should be resettled. And that means finding countries that are willing to accept uh, people coming from Gaza, which, as I said a few minutes ago, the Arab world is very nervous about. Egypt doesn't want them. Jordan doesn't want them. But somebody's going to have to take them. I think people should understand, before October the 7th, there was essentially almost no viable economic activity in the Gaza Strip. 
it's not connected to a functioning economy. And if you just leave the people there, it will remain disconnected from normal economic intercourse. For the good of the Palestinians in Gaza, they should go someplace where there's a real economy. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about our border and border security here. Um, In the last week, we had a 20-year-old Palestinian man who was arrested in the U.S. for possession, illegal possession of firearms. He was in direct contact, according to the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of Texas, in direct contact with others who, quote, share a radical mindset and was training with weapons to possibly commit an attack. We also had an incident Uh, an incident where Border Patrol unknowingly released an African terrorism suspect into the U.S. after he was caught caught crossing illegally in Arizona on October 3rd. And uh, a a week later, ICE was notified by Homeland Security he was wanted in Senegal for terrorist activities, and then he was arrested in New York on 10-17. I know these are one-offs, as far as we know, because we don't know what we don't know, which is also concerning. But uh, what what about this? Does does um, uh, do these incidents speak to the sort of high alert we should be on? I mean, Christopher Ray has said so. But then the question is, what is Christopher Ray uh, and the Biden administration doing about it? Well, look, uh, let me say first about Chris Ray. I, I think he's doing a, a great job as FBI director. I think he gets a totally bum rap from people who don't really understand how the FBI functions. He's been warning about the threat from China uh, since back at the day I first joined the Trump administration. Uh, And I think on the border, he's been sounding the warning, uh, as as you just indicated. Leaving aside the issue of illegal immigration, let's just put that to the side for this purpose. Uh, It's been clear for a long time that the southern border is a place where uh, national security threats to the United States Uh, are very grave, and our lack of control over that border leaves us vulnerable. Vulnerable as well to the tide of illegal drugs that come in from Mexico, shipped there from uh, around the world, and and, uh, we we definitely need to get more serious about it. This goes back a long way. You know, in the the Obama administration, the Justice Department indicted officials from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard uh, for a plot to kill the Saudi ambassador to America in a, in a restaurant in Washington after they crossed the Mexican border into the United States. So this, this route for terrorists, for our adversaries, is very well known, and we have not effectively closed that access off, and we need to. What about what happened here on Saturday at the, at the Capitol? I mean, many were trying to tear down the White House gates. They were throwing objects at Secret Service agents, and why, why no arrests? Don't you think they crossed the line? I definitely do. I, I'm look. I'm a I'm a law and order conservative. I think anybody who went into the Capitol on January sixth, twenty twenty one, should spend a long time in jail. People who do what uh, these some of these people did illegally during this uh, demonstration on Saturday should go to jail too. This is this. You know, you're entitled to any opinion that that you want practically in this country. You're not entitled uh, to try and disrupt really functioning. He is former ambassador to the U.N., John Bolton, former assistant to the president for national security uh, affairs and author of The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. Thanks for joining us again, John. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The answer. Come join the murder. 
Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Kim Fox's theme music, as long as we have her in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. She sat down with uh, WTTW. Say it. Well, Matt talking to Winnetka. Thank you. Uh, to uh, give her assessment. You know, it's already been a month since the uh, Pritzker Purge Law has gone into effect. Uh, everything going well? How's it going? It couldn't be going better. So it's been more than a month since the elimination of cash bail in Illinois. Would you say it's meeting intended goals? Absolutely. I mean, the intention was to make sure that people who posed a threat to public safety uh, were able to be detained and people who didn't were released. And the numbers are telling us uh, murder, attempt murder, vehicular hijacking. Those people are being detained pre-trial, And we're seeing less people who are in the jail for nonviolent low level offenses. It's going great. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, 64636-DA-turnkey.pro. Text line, pay no attention to uh, the three people murdered in Brighton Park or that 11-year-old girl who was critically injured when a bullet went through her window in West Englewood over the weekend. Violent weekend in Chicago. I know. Eight She's dead, I think. She's still in critical condition, and or the neighbor that was mad that people are walking through his yard. Mm-hmm. Um, 11 people... Eleven people mugged during two hours of daytime robberies on Saturday in Logan Square and Humboldt Park. Uh, ten armed robberies reported in, within 45 minutes. Take that, That's Humboldt a, Park yeah. and uh, Logan Square. Eleven armed robberies reported within 45 minutes on the southwest side. That's all this weekend. They're trying to win the Olympics for armed robberies. Uh, couldn't be going better. Um, interesting, too, just... Uh, well, well, let's hear a little bit more from Kim Fox because I want to get to the electronic monitoring piece. But uh, Cook County Jail's population is decreasing. It's decreased significantly. Now, this is a trend that's been going on for a while under uh, Tony, Tony, Tony Preckwinkle. Remember when she ran for Cook County Board President, her goal, main goal, was to reduce the uh, population at Cook County Jail. Well, that's going very well, too. Yeah, I think judges were preparing in anticipation of the Pretrial Fairness Act going into place September 18th. And so we were seeing those numbers dip. And then I think, again, we're seeing cases where people who were not going to be detained were not being held. And so those numbers, those low-level nonviolent offenses, uh, those people are not languishing for even a day or two. So that's why that daily population is staying low. Yep, she's happy to report that for the first time in 40 years, the daily population of Cook County Jail is fewer than 5,000. Um, people of Cook County, residents of Cook County, you should take pride in this. I will say, and, and the people of Cook County should be really proud of the coordination and collaboration between our office, the public defender, the sheriff, the judiciary. And so, you know, the first week with something so monumental and new, you know, we knew we were going to see some rough spots. Uh, but overall, I think it has been relatively seamless given the gravity of what we're doing. I mean, they're firing on all cylinders. Seamless. Be proud of your criminal justice system in Cook County, Cook County residents. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text line. Now, I know what your concern is. Are there too many people uh, in the no-cash bail uh, regime now that are being unfairly limited with electronic monitors? Are there too many? Oh, that's the concern now. The concern is there's too many. You don't want to use electronic monitoring as a way to sort of de facto imprison people. 
pending trial. And there's good news on that front, too. I, I'm, I'm certain they're going to continue to look at that, but that hasn't borne out in any way. Uh, the numbers have remained relatively steady in maybe a very slight dip in the number of people on electronic monitoring. And so I think we were gearing up and anticipating that that might be the offset. If you're not held in custody, then they'll put you on a bracelet. But the numbers thus far have not borne that out. Thank God. The good news, there are fewer people on electronic monitoring as well as in Cook County Jail. Now, um, this is, of course, not uh, proposing that people be uh, held in Cook County Jail or put on electronic, uh, electronic monitoring for no reason. But um, it's also an odd position to take for a prosecutor to just suggest that declining numbers to near historic lows is in and of itself a good. That seems to me a bit curious, doesn't it? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text line, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Now, we also have this situation. We brought it to you last week, but just in the context of the good news about electronic monitoring that Kim Fox shared with us. Chicago man jailed to await trial after prosecutors said he viciously stabbed his ex's new boyfriend while on bail for a pending felony gun case. This guy is the 23rd person accused of shooting, killing, or trying to shoot or kill someone in Chicago while awaiting trial for a separate felony. The cases involve at least 37 victims, 11 of whom died. So, yeah, there's always that part of it. I mean, this is just one subset but it would seem to me that um, the fact that he was on electronic monitoring and then committed, uh, allegedly committed an attempted murder, that doesn't seem to me like uh, an indicia of success. But that's me. And I'm a bit of a stickler. I know that's those are the annualized stats. That's this calendar year so far. But... Um, and the, the Pritzker Purge Law has only been in effect for a little bit more than a month, month and a half. But, um, of course, as we know, or you should know if you're a Cook County resident, Kim Fox and Tim Evans have been sort of operating under the Pritzker Purge Law in a de facto way right. before it went into effect, long before it went into effect, like since she took office. Exactly. And that's what, you know, like people downstate, they're getting a taste of what it's been like living in Chicago. Because remember when it came into effect, I posted video on my Twitter account of people just being released from prison. And I and the sheriff said, I, you know, a reporter asked, well, where are they going? He said, back into the neighborhoods where they allegedly committed their crimes. And there's nothing we can do about it. It was just a string of people coming out well, of jail. Um, that doesn't square with what Kim Fox is saying, um, because there is no recidivism. So far, that hasn't borne out. I mean, and keeping in mind, it's only been about five weeks, uh, but we have not seen an uptick in people who were released uh, committing new crimes or people not returning to their court dates. And so I think, you know, the fear mongering that happened before uh, this bill went into to effect of the jails were going to be emptied and people were going to be running the streets is not borne out. What we've seen is that people who have posed a threat to public safety are now being detained um, and as they should. And that people who are not a threat are allowed to go out um, and live their lives and come back and be held accountable uh, without having to use our jail resources. I mean, it's going beautifully. 
Are you sure you don't want to come back downtown for dinner and a show, you suburbanites? I mean, did you hear this? You know, it's a, a tranquil city. It's um, a city you should enjoy. I mean, unless you're facing armed robbers and on the southwest side or or uh, robbery crews in Humboldt Park or Logan Square. They're even stealing dogs. Unless you're a little girl who lives in West Inglewood. I know those are just anecdotes. She's, she's looking at the macro level. So on balance, things are going very, very well. Uh, text from a, a criminal defense attorney, 773. It used to be difficult to hear in custody to defendants on Zoom. Uh, it used to be difficult to hear custody defendants on Zoom because of the noise in the lockup. Now it's quiet, maybe two prisoners and stacked chairs in the background. See, it's so much better. Uh, I, I uh, sent this over to our friend uh, Ted Dabrowski at Wirepoints for comments, and so Wirepoints has done a lot of analytical work on this. Uh, here were some of his comments in reaction to what you just heard from Kim Fox. One, she's hiding behind twenty-seven, uh, the 2017 uh, Chief Judge Tim Evans's no-bail, low-cash bail reforms, which began long before the Safety Act, to the point uh, I just made. Also, uh, the types of criminals out on electronic monitoring much, are much more dangerous than before. The real comparison is now versus 2016, far more dangerous criminals. Uh, the uh, jail count is way down over a long trend, uh, but now count is headed down again. And, you know, the other thing, too, is it's just too early to make uh, sweeping pronouncements because it's just been a short time since the Pritzker Purge Law has been in effect. It's certainly it's too late to make too early to make sweeping announcements outside of Cook County, where Cook County has been operating under the Pritzker purge law, as I said, in a de facto way for the past six years. So nothing new here for Cook County, but it is getting new for the collar counties and the exurbs and the rest of the state. OK. Well, I feel better. How about you, Ron Southside? You're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, Danny. She talks like she works for the public defender's office. She's a prosecutor, and she said we should not be wasting the resources of the jail. What else are you going to do with the jail? You want to put the migrants there? You, like, 2020 can't come soon enough, and I'm glad that she's getting out of there. Don't have to waste time to, to get it. She's an absolute embarrassing but the lady is delusional if you listen to her she, she's been terrible have a good day thanks ron greg jefferson park hey good morning guys they got a few uh one a uh, guy with a black guy with a monitor on his ankle was uh having sex in a park oh, over yeah. at irving and narragansett that's a that's a doozy uh the walgreens i go to montrose and Centros have three armed robberies in the last year Walgreens at what Canfield and uh, Higgins over there has had two or three armed robberies in the past few months in the parking lot, carjackings at Mariano's on Cumberland. The northwest side is becoming, you know, one of the new uh, prime areas for these for these thugs to come and do whatever the hell they want. And there is absolutely no no nothing. I had a buddy who's a lawyer. Cumberland and Sunnyside by Montrose there, walking in his neighborhood in the morning, 7.15 in the morning, car pulls up, four black guys in it. Uh, can you tell us where the post office is around here? At 7.15 in the morning. Unbelievable.
this stuff is is not going to end with these clowns that we got in office. Have a good one. Well, I can tell you Thanks, at the Mariano's in Park Ridge, because I often shop there, they have a Park Ridge police officer stationed there at all times. Hmm. Because of they're worried about more carjackings and theft going on inside the store and outside the store in the parking lot. Uh, recidivism uh, is... Uh, no higher than normal. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of a deceptive statement, isn't it? What's the recidivism rate generally? Uh, you know, this all against the backdrop. Very interesting piece in the NPR Times uh, state-run media. Profiling West Garfield Park. I, I, I thought that things are going. Um, this is the NPR Times. No city in America sees more shootings than Chicago. What? That's just big city living. Chicago's no different than any other big city. It's just what happens in big cities. Wait, what? No city in America sees more shootings than Chicago, reports the NPR Times. Huh. And nowhere in the city is gun violence more intense than in West Garfield Park. The Square Mile neighborhood, just west of one of the largest botanical conservatories in the country, has seen nearly a 1,000 shootings over the last five years, roughly one every other day. Thousand shootings over the last five years. How long has Kim Fox been in office? One every other day. The population of West Garfield Park has fallen steadily in the since the 1950s, dwindling to 17,000 people today. Gosh, I wonder why. I wouldn't want to stay there. And so they profile all of these individuals who live in West Garfield Park and who have stayed despite the nearly constant gunfire. Their description. These uh, NPR Times goo-goos and their crime porn. Come on. It's going well. Uh, you know, these are all black residents. A mother who wants her two sons to grow up without seeing what she did as a child. Former gang members who've been in a line of fire now trying to find some peace. A restaurateur looking to nourish the people of his community. An anti-violence worker trying to pull gang members off the streets and into therapy, education, and jobs. Gang members off the streets? What are you talking about? That sounds like um, a situation where you have habitual violent criminals on the streets. That doesn't sound like the description that Kim Fox is pre uh, presenting. No, she's like all rainbows and unicorns. Everything's fine. Jim and Lyle. Hey, Dan, I live in Lyle, obviously. You just said that. And uh, over the summer, I took my granddaughter with my wife to the Lyle Water Park. And it was to our amazement when we saw a gentleman in the zero-depth pool area with where the little kids are walking around with an ankle monitor on. Because they get 48 hours, but they get 48 hours off. I, I don't understand. People who have Thanks, committed violent crimes against people five days in and then 48 off. And they do go to pools. They go to beaches. They go around. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Meet your new neighbors. Uh, Capricia Northfleet is a 28-year-old mom, delivery driver, mother of two sons. And by the way, I feel terrible for these residents who can't get out of West Garfield Park and so many other neighborhoods. Interesting what she said. I'm quoting her. We hear the gunshots when they hear it, her kids. I say, them firecrackers, they are really popping them firecrackers out there. I don't want to say, oh, they're gunshots, they're shooting. She has a lot in common with Kim Fox. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. 
This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So as uh, Mike Scott's been reporting all morning, this uh, new New York Times-Siena College survey, Trump versus Biden. Trump leads Biden by 10 points in Nevada, six points in Georgia, five points in Arizona, five points in Michigan, four points in Pennsylvania. He's down two to Biden in Wisconsin. Now, Biden carried all six of those states in 2020. But now 59 percent of voters in those states say they disapprove of Biden's performance to 38 percent say they approve. Meanwhile, 71 percent of respondents said Biden is too old to be an effective president compared to 39 percent who said the same about Trump. I mean, 39 percent is not a good number. But when you're uh, plus 32 against your opponent, your likely opponent, that's it's not a bad number either. It's going to make it tough for Republicans on this debate stage in Miami on Wednesday night to uh, make the argument that Trump is unelectable. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. In all uh, five of those states that he's up, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, he's up outside the margin of error. Now, one, a couple of cautions. Uh, One is that it was registered voters, not likely voters. I like likely. Uh, Number two, snapshot in time. Things can change. How the larger public reacts if and when Trump is convicted on some of the charges he's facing and some of the trials that proceed before next November. That will be impactful, perhaps. Although I think a lot of people have baked into their position that Trump will be convicted of something. Well, they're, um, they're throwing lots of stuff against the wall to see what sticks. But, I mean, consider, too, 76% of Americans say this country is heading in the wrong direction. Right. Not a good number for your incumbent. No. And even David Axelrod, you know, he was floating the idea on Twitter last night that Biden could drop out of the 2024 race he took to Twitter or whatever, saying it's very late to change horses. A lot will happen in the next year that no one can predict. And Biden's team says his resolve to run is firm. He's defied CW before, but this will send tremors of doubt through the party. There's no question. Um, thus, the uh, late primary challenge by that congressman, Dean Phillips from Minnesota. But as we've discussed before, uh, Biden Incorporated has every incentive to stick it out if they want to avoid the possible fate of a Donald Trump out of office. Um. So I, I don't see it changing. Again, we're we're basically just under two months from the Iowa caucus, you know, for the Republicans, of course, just under two months for that. And um, yeah, to say late in the game is an understatement. And I suspect that's more wishful thinking on Axelrod's part than the reality within Democrat ranks, which is why these some of these races that are going to be decided in tomorrow in places like Kentucky and Virginia and Pennsylvania uh, may be instructive, particularly in Kentucky, governor's race there. Andy Beshear is a Democrat, you know, but he's, it's, it's an unusual circumstance 
he sort of presents as a moderate Democrat, even though he's completely aligned with the cultural Marxists on um, these issues, the salient issues of the day. His father was a governor, you know, the lineage. Daniel Cameron is the attorney general of the state of Kentucky. He is the first black statewide elected official in Kentucky's history. He's the first Republican attorney general there in 70 years. He's also 37 year old, uh, 37 years old, young guy. He's extremely sharp, which is why if you haven't heard, if you haven't heard of Daniel Cameron, that's why you haven't heard of him. Because they don't want to put any attention on this this guy. I was going to say kid, but he's not a kid. He's the Attorney General of the State of Kentucky. Oh, he played football at Louisville, too, by the way. Um, he is a superstar waiting to break out. I mean, he could go from Kentucky governor to national very quickly, oh, yeah. in my view. Yep. And you you may remember him, not because the the press corps is giving you uh, any profile in the Kentucky governor's race. They don't want to. They've tried to keep it as uh, under the uh, radar as possible. Bashir has gone from a lead of 16 points to a dead heat as of this weekend. I mean, Kentucky, as everyone knows, is a state that in presidential races goes for the Republican by 25 points. But state and local races are different. You know, personalities matter. People make independent decisions on, for example, a governor's race that may differ from what they do in a presidential contest. And um, Cameron is an unapologetic conservative. So it's not like, oh, he's middling it. He's no, no, no. Mm-mm. You know where he stands. Um, the the other th- the thing that's happening there, too, uh, is a lot of Kentucky residents that may have been inclined to be sure are losing faith in uh, – the results that they're getting. Um, one, uh, Selena Zito did a write-up on this for Washington Examiner, which is quite good. Uh, she talked to a mom of three uh, who said, less than half of Kentucky kids can read at grade level. They're still doing better than Illinois. Yeah. And Bashir never addresses it in a meaningful way. He has never apologized for placing our children in this position in reaction to COVID, for example. Uh, In Kentucky, the rate of Kentucky students labeled chronically absent jumped to 30 percent in 2022, up from 18 percent the year before the pandemic. That's huge. Um, And so, you know, uh, Bashir, who's running on bringing battery plants to the state for EVs. Have you heard that that somewhere before? Yeah, yeah. Uh Um, I don't care. Don't forget what he did to your kids during COVID. Well, well, right. He was one of the original COVIDians, remember? And trying to make it make up for it with uh, battery plans for EVs wow. is not winning the day. Uh, she writes, Selena Zito, there's a fairly decent chance Wednesday morning much of the national press will wake up and ask one. Uh, will ask again. This has happened before when Bevin beat Conway in Kentucky. Will wake up and ask what happened. If so, they miss. They will have missed two things. First, education does matter to parents. In particular, one who now sees the effects of poor educate the the effects poor education has had on the college educated students of today, who are beclowning themselves in attacking Jewish students. Um, and um, and also, it's just the star power of Cameron. 
If Cameron wasn't such an impressive young man, this may not be happening. But um, so so there's his talent as a, a leader and a candidate. But he has a record as attorney general and he's taken on some of the tough cases like uh, the inst- the incident uh, with Breonna Taylor and uh, cops in Louisville. And when those cops were not charged, when she was shot and killed, remember, she was one of the Bre- Breonna Taylor's one of the names invoked by the Black Lives Matter crowd. Uh, she was in a in a in an apartment with a known drug dealer and a suspect. He opened fire on the cops and they returned fire and she was unfortunately killed in the crossfire. But he took he took on that case. And when um, the uh, jury declined to approve charges on the cops, he had this to say. Evidence shows that officers both knocked and announced their presence at the apartment. The officer's statements about their announcement are corroborated by an independent witness who was near in a proximity to apartment four. In other words, the warrant was not served as a no-knock warrant. Which was what the uh, purveyors of Agiprop were saying about it. This is against state-level charges, different and distinct from local. Uh, On Taylor's boyfriend the drug dealer Mm -hmm. that cops wanted. Kenneth Walker fired the shot that hit Sergeant Mattingly, and there's no evidence to support that Sergeant Mattingly was hit by friendly fire from other officers. Mr. Walker admitted that he fired one shot and was the first to shoot. In addition to all the testimony, the ballistics report shows that the round that struck Sergeant Mattingly was fired from a 9-millimeter handgun. The LMPD officers fired 40 caliber handguns. So you had an attorney general who, uh, and, and a grand jury who uh, was presenting what we know to be true, and they made a judgment based on the evidence, a novel concept in many of the criminal justice systems around the country these days, see, please see Cook County. Uh, Daniel Cameron had a speaking role at the uh, COVID conventions back in 2020. Oh, yeah. oh, and um, he, he had uh, this to say about himself. I also think about Joe Biden, who says, if you aren't voting for me, you ain't black, who argued that Republicans would put us back in chains, who says there is no diversity of thought in the black community. Mr. Vice President, look at me. I am black. We are not all the same, sir. I am not in chains. My mind is my own. And you can't tell me how to vote because of the color of my skin. Joe Biden is a backwards thinker in a world that is craving forward-looking leadership. There's no wisdom in his record or plan, just a trail of discredited ideas and offensive statements. Mm-hmm. 312-642-5600, turnkey. Six four six three six DA Turnkey Pro text line. One other uh, statement from Cameron during that RNC address. The politics of identity, cancellation, and mob rule are not acceptable to me. Republicans trust you to think for yourself and to pursue your American dream, however you see fit. Uh, it's nice succinct rejection of identity politics. Also a good indication of what kind of governor. 
Daniel Cameron will be, as he has been during his time as attorney general. And it's interesting because of the damage control that uh, Democrat socialists are trying to do, the identitarians are trying to do in reaction to this New York Times Santa pool. Give you an example. Uh, Jasmine Crockett, he, she's a Democrat from Texas. She's one of the lesser known socialist spice girls. Well, she's a wannabe. She's like a groupie at this point, but I think she might be elevated up. No, she's 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 a member. Oh, she's a think? member in okay. full standing, but she's sort of she's like the Eric Singer oh, of the Socialist Spice okay. Girls. Do you know who that is? Eric Singer? No. Which one? He's is the he? drummer for Kiss. Oh, right. You know Paul Stanley. You know I know Gene Paul Simmons. Stanley, Gene Simmons. I don't know the brains. You know he's freely. You, you don't know Eric Singer, and that's kind of what you, Jasmine Crockett is. You don't know her. Here's what she said about the drop in black support for Biden, oh, okay. which was reflected in that New York Times Siena survey which in part, in part, explained Trump's lead in those swing states. Here's the deal. Perception is reality. And so when you look at the data that was provided in this poll, it talks about how people feel. And when people decide whether they're going to the poll or whether they're not going to, to the poll, it's all about how you feel in that moment. And so while the facts may not align with their feelings, their feelings are dictating their reality. Their reality is that they said that they feel better or they felt better when Trump was in office. But we've been trying to push back. We've got some very popular African-American artists that are out here saying things like, oh, I got checks when Trump was in office. I want those checks again, not understanding that that really came from Congress. Mm. So we've got a couple of things, the perception mm. issue, and then we also have an issue as it relates to civics in this country and people not understanding exactly how any of this works. Okay, is she saying that black voters are too dumb to understand what's going on? Yeah, basically. Okay, yeah, that's not insulting. Interesting pitch. Yeah. Um, but the uh, the lack of understanding of civics. Oh, Who's in charge God. of the schools? <laughs> Tom in Blue Island, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. Dan, I'm still holding out hope we can get a conciliatory message from Mr. DeSantis at Wednesday's vice presidential debate. Trump can suppress his ego They can get in there. Trump can take the sledgehammer to the glass menagerie that is D.C. DeSantis can clean it up for eight years. Get rid of scumbag chicken hawks like John Bolton. Thank you. Well, hope isn't a strategy, Tom, but um, we'll see. I think, you know, it's going to be hard charging to the end. And then once you have uh, a nominee solidified, that's the time for conciliation. So I don't I don't. Blanche at the prospect of a hard-fought race, but then you have to fall in line behind the winner after the fact, I suppose. I suppose that's the right and proper play. Kevin in Austin, Texas. Yeah, so the poll is on for swing states, right? So I'm curious, could this be uh, like predicted of DuPage, which is, could that be considered a swing county? So is there hope for DuPage County to come back? Mm. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't hold out much hope, Kevin. I mean, the difference between, uh, say, DuPage County and other collars and uh, those swing states that are in play and where Trump is leading is they have a Republican Party. They have an opposition party. They have like a fun. I mean, to varying degrees, but they have a functioning party that does stuff as reflected in. uh, In many of those states, people in office. 
I mean, Brian Kemp and Republicans are in charge of the state of Georgia, for example. There are there is Republican control of some of the branches of government in those swing states. That is easy to distinguish from Illinois, isn't it? In, including at the county level these days. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Now, uh, our next guest, Rafael Manguel from the Manhattan Institute, he and his compatriots have uh, come up with model legislation to deal with violent crime in America. And I assume it's just cutting and pasting what we've done here in Illinois with the Pritzker purge law. Because, again, um, stop believing your lying eyes. Stop believing, you know, conservative talkers with their crime porn. And start believing professional prosecutors like Kim Fox, who has nothing but good news to report about what's happening in Cook County, for example, at the jail. Yeah, I think judges were preparing in anticipation of the Pretrial Fairness Act going into place September 18th. And so we were seeing those numbers dip. And then I think, again, we're seeing cases where people who were not going to be detained were not being held. And so those numbers, those low-level nonviolent offenses, uh, those people are not languishing for even a day or two. So that's why that daily population is staying low. And she's happy to report that the uh, daily population of Cook County Jail is at a 40-year low, uh, under 5,000 inmates on a, on a daily basis. That's good news. More good news. The uh, incidence of electronic monitoring being used for those released pretrial has not increased. So uh, people who are have been charged with what she would call low-level offenses and nonviolent crimes, you know, assaults and so forth, nonviolent, uh, they uh, can amble about freely until their trial date. I, I'm, I'm certain they're going to continue to look at that, but that hasn't borne out in any way. Uh, the numbers have remained relatively steady in maybe a very slight dip in the number of people on electronic monitoring. And so I think we were gearing up and anticipating that that might be the offset. If you're not held in custody, then they'll put you on a bracelet. But the numbers thus far have not borne that out. All right. So Cook County jail population is down. There's no increase in the use of electronic monitoring. So great news. Uh, also, you're saying, well, what about uh, the incidence of recidivism? Uh, we haven't seen any increase in 90 days with respect to recidivism either. So far, that hasn't borne out. I mean, in keeping in mind, it's only been about five weeks, uh, but we have not seen an uptick in people who were released uh, committing new crimes or people not returning to their court dates. And so I think, you know, the fear-mongering that happened before uh, this bill went into to effect of the jails were going to be emptied and people were going to be running the streets is now borne out. What we have seen is that people who have posed a threat to public safety are now being detained, um, and as they should, and that people who are not a threat are allowed to go out um, and live their lives and come back and be held accountable uh, without having to use our jail resources. Exactly. Uh, pay, no so pay no attention to uh, the people that... Uh, have committed uh, a violent crime attempting to kill or or killing someone while out on electronic monitoring, which uh, CWB Chicago has been reporting for the last several years. Don't pay attention to that. 
pay attention to what uh, Kim Fox is saying about how wondrous this all is, which is uh, curious, this uh, next statement from Harold Ford, the former Dem legislator from Tennessee, who you now can see on The Five, if yep. you can tolerate that program, I which I can't. that show. Uh, Harold Ford um, talking about uh, New York and the incidence of violent crime in New York, which is uh, much lower on a per capita basis than Chicago. And New York, they moved to... Uh, uh, no cash bail, not as comprehensively as Illinois did, to their shame. But they moved to a modified no cash bail back in 2019. So they have four years of experience yeah. with this. And Harold Ford had this to say about reducing violent crime in metropolitan areas like New York. First, you got to end cashless bail. Uh, it's not working. Um, I was one from the outset that thought that there might be some benefit, but it has not turned out to be a benefit. Right. And I think you have to be responsible since it's not working. What, how, how, it's oh. not working in New York. I can only assume it's not working in New York because they didn't go as far as we did in Illinois. They need to go further with no cash bail. So, again, let's cut and paste the uh, Safety Act, the Pritzker Purge Law, and let's uh, you know use Illinois as the model for good governments as it is in so many other instances. Right? Rafael Manguel is a senior fellow and the head of research for the Manhattan Institute's Policing and Public Safety Initiative. He's also the author of the book Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Mass Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Rafael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. Uh, who are you more surprised by in terms of their comments, Kim Fox or Harold Ford? Um, I, I pro Probably Ford, only because the sky has quite yet in New York. Um, and so, you know, that that is definitely emboldened the defenders of the, our crazy bail laws and our other criminal justice reforms. Um, you know, Kim Fox is just uh, operating in a different world, right? She's completely detached from reality um, and is 100 percent unwilling to engage with 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 data and, and with the reality on the ground. I mean, there are just cases after cases and examples after examples of people who have committed heinous offenses, low-level offenses, who have been caught repeatedly with illegal firearms, all while having an active criminal justice status, whether that means they're out on pretrial release or on probation or parole. Um, the idea that the criminal justice system in the state of Illinois or in the city of Chicago is doing a good job of, of incapacitating the, the most violent people, I think, is laughable. And New York, uh, we know because they have more than uh, a month, you know, a little over a month worth of data. They have four years of it. The most recent uh, research I saw was, and I think it was um, a colleague of yours at the Manhattan Institute, saw a, a statistically significant increase in crime, violent crime, uh, class X felonies, since their modified no cash bail system was enacted in 2019, right? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that defenders of these things like to say is that, well, you know, post-reform, we see people who are out on pretrial release reoffending at the same rate. This is what they hang their hat on. But here's the thing. If you have more people out on pretrial release and that population offends at the same rate, well, that means an increase in crime, right? If you have 100 people, 10% of whom will reoffend, and then you increase the number of pretrial uh, releasees to 200 people, well, now you've just doubled the number of offenses. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't, we don't do math in Cook County. Please. I, <laughs> I, yeah, I thought we made that clear. Uh, all right, well, let's get to your uh, proposed uh, model uh, legislation in terms of what 
communities like Cook County, um, states like Illinois could do if they were not criminally insane? Yeah. So, you know, what I really wanted to do with this new report was just kind of figure out, like, how can people who are on the right side of this issue play a little bit of offense? Right. You know, we, we spend most of our time, you know, I know certainly at the Manhattan Institute and lots of other people who are working in this space kind of batting down bad ideas. And that can certainly be a full employment program if you want it to be. Um, but but I really wanted to come up with a plan of, of offense. Right. So, you know, there are kind of three things that I think are, are probably the biggest holes uh, in our criminal justice system. And the vast majority of them have to do with reoffenses recidivism, repeat offending by people who have very extensive criminal histories, right? If you look at the city of Chicago, for example, uh, the University of Chicago Crime Lab released a report on uh, shootings and homicides in 2015 and 16 and found that on average, people charged with those offenses had 12 prior arrests. Almost one in five had more than 20 prior arrests, right? So what this tells us is that there's a problem. This criminal justice system is not doing a very good job of keeping the people who need to be off the street off the street. Why? Well, because you have prosecutors like Tim Fox who aren't pursuing charges to the full extent of the law. You have judges like uh, Tim Evans who are just not uh, going to be uh, trustworthy when it comes to when it comes time to actually put somebody behind bars for a significant period of time. You have parole boards that are just you know uh, out of control and and grant parole uh, you know, as a rubber stamp, um, and that puts a lot of reoffenders on the street. So. One thing that you can do is you can draw a line in the sand as to repeated criminal offending and say beyond this point, no more. What does that look like? You know, uh, the, the kind of original version of this was the three strikes laws that we saw popping up around the country starting in the 1970s and 80s. Um, there were some critiques of, of, of those regimes. I like to think that this kind of modified three strikes proposal uh, is responsive to those critiques in the sense that. It widens the scope of offenses that can get you a point towards a strike, um, whereas many three strikes uh, uh, regimes, you could only get a strike for a serious uh, violent felony. This will get you a partial strike even for a certain misdemeanor convictions. Um, but, you know, it also rewards uh, desistance. So if you go a period of years, you know, starting at three years and five years and 10 years without reoffending, you will get strikes taken off your record, right? So it creates incentives in both directions. But what, what we know is that, you know, people who are reoffending can be deterred by the prospect of serious uh, amounts of time. The other thing, though, is that, you know, a lot of times uh, our, our criminal justice systems give way too much good time credit uh, for people who are actually sent to prison, even if they're sent to prison for a relatively long time, such that they're cutting their sentences more than uh, so the other thing that we wanted to do was uh, propose a kind of modified truth and sentencing regime that will raise the threshold of, of uh, the share of a sentence that someone has to serve before they're eligible for release, irrespective of the kinds of good time credits that, you know, uh, that they might otherwise acquire. And then people say, well, you know, you're kind of disincentivizing then uh, individuals who are incarcerated from participating in programs because they may no longer get the benefit. And what I say to that is, Show me the evidence that these programs are actually reducing recidivism in some significant way. I mean, from where I can sit, the recidivism data in this country shows that somewhere between 80 and 83 percent of people who are released from state prisons are going to reoffend at least once. Right. That's that's a major problem. So we need to maximize uh, incapacitation. That's the, the main goal of these proposals. But the third proposal is really, really key um, in that it's, it, it has nothing to do with sentencing or punishment but has everything to do with data transparency. 
What we want is for people in prosecutors' offices like the Cook County uh, State's Attorney's Office with, with prosecutors like Kim Fox and, and people like George Gascon out in L.A. and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia is to have to start reporting in a uniform way the measures that we all know indicate their failures. For example, what share of homicides or other serious felonies are committed by people with an active criminal justice status? What share are committed by people on parole, on probation? out on pretrial release? What's the average number of prior arrests for people who were uh, charged with serious offenses, et cetera? Making jurisdictions report that data in a systematic way on a regular basis will allow us to track the success or failures of their policies and will also allow the, the institutions that have been the object of, of really terrible uh, and bad faith critiques defend themselves against those critiques by being able to point to the hard numbers of why they're doing what they're doing. Is any district doing that so far anywhere in the country? So we've, we, we, we have uh, seen a few states recently um, start to toy with these ideas. So uh, Tennessee has been just an absolute leader on this stuff. Uh, they actually passed a truth and sentencing regime and signed it into law um, just last year or last session, I should say. And they have already proposed a modified three strikes um, bill. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'll be interested to see, you know, how that ends up playing out. Um, and, and, yeah, I do think, you know, in Congress, for example, Nicole Maliotakis, Republican representative from New York, has proposed a very similar data transparency measure. Um, so, so there's definitely momentum starting to build up for this. And what I'd like to do is, is sort of have this blueprint uh, for people who care about these issues to start putting uh, that concern into action. And the point here that uh, you make often, but it bears emphasis, is we're trying to zero in on the serial predators. We're not trying to grow the the population in Cook County Jail or anywhere else for the number of people on electronic monitoring just just for the purposes of of sidelining more people who've committed a particular offense. We're really trying to get to this subgroup that's responsible for the preponderance, if not the majority of the, the violent crime. That's exactly right. I mean, if you look at any jurisdiction around the world, what you're going to see consistently is that the vast majority of serious offenses are committed by a very, very small slice of the population that's constituted by very active uh, serial offenders. The, you know, the critique against kind of tough on crime policies is always that, well, you're just, you know, you're just pursuing mass incarceration. You just want to throw everyone away and lock away the key. And of course, that's not the case. When you, when you look at, you know, these proposals, for example, you'll see that they really only attach to people who are repeat offenders and who are committing very, very serious violent crimes that have very, very high social costs. Right. So, you know, if you look at the kind of uh, offense profile or criminal history profile that someone who might be eligible for a third strike under this sort of regime uh, would be, I, I have to ask, you know, critics of this, you know, you tell me why the guy with four, you know, uh, misdemeanor convictions and three nonviolent felony convictions and two violent felony convictions doesn't need to go away for a long time. I mean, Raphael, you tell me why we should roll the dice. Rafael Manguel is a senior fellow and the head of research for the Manhattan Institute's Policing and Public Safety Initiative. He's the author of the book Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Mass Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Rafael, thank you as always. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank.
Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.